Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Educational AD Podcast. We'll be right back with today's very special guest, but we want to give a shout out to our partners. We coach the Florida Coaches Coalition, Vital Signs, Wall of Fame, and the global community of women in high school sports. You've heard me say many times before, these are four great organizations that you should really add to your network. And now, don't hit that fast forward button. Stay with us for the next four minutes as we give our sponsors a shout out. These are all companies that I used as an athletic director. You should be using them too. Here we go. We want to say thanks to our good friends at Gipper for their support of the podcast. Gipper is the official social media graphic solution for us. And if you go to Gipper.com, their team is going to show you how to create custom content for your school's social media channel. It's going to help you celebrate your teams, promote your athletes and your programs. And it's so easy, even I can do it. Gipper's used and trusted by over 3,000 athletic programs across the country, and you should be using it too. Go to Gipper.com to get started. We also want to say thanks to Huddle. Go to Huddle.com and change the way you see the game. As a football coach, I used Huddle for years, and it was just great. But when I became an athletic director, I made sure our school was a Huddle school. And our coaches just loved the tools that Huddle provided that allowed them to coach our kids at the highest level. Go to Huddle.com and see why we believe in sports and teams believe in Huddle. Join the 8 million users Find out how to turn your school into a huddle school. We also want to say thank you to Vital Signs Wall of Fame. Go to their website, vitalsignswalloffame.com, and check out their interactive touchscreen video consoles. It's a great way to showcase your school records for all the teams, for all the sports, or your school's Hall of Fame, or just tell more compelling stories about your school's history and your proudest moments. Go to vitalsignswalloffame.com for more information. We also want to say thank you to Home Campus. Home Campus is the exclusive high school and state association platform for us. It's also your one-stop platform for things like scheduling, athlete eligibility and clearance, coaches clearance, and a whole lot more. As an athletic director, I used Home Campus every single day, and it was just great. To find out how Home Campus can help you, all you need to do is go to homecampus.com. That's homecampus.com. We want to thank Sideline Interactive for their support of the podcast. Go to sidelineinteractive.com and schedule a live web demo to see their scoreboards and their score tables in action. Their products not only generate income for your department, but they also create the ultimate game day experience for your student-athletes. That's sidelineinteractive.com. We want to thank Hometown Ticketing for their support. Hometown is the leading digital ticketing provider to schools and colleges. Um, it's also um, a, a great way to streamline the ticket taking and revenue collection for your home events, not just athletic events, but things like school plays and concerts, school dances, even graduation. You'll find out all the information you need at hometownticketing.com. It's digital ticketing that offers more. We want to say thanks to Snap Mobile. Go to snapraise.com. That's the website, Snapraise. Check out their entire suite of platforms designed to help you do your job better. If you're looking for a fundraiser, 
That's what SnapRaise is, the best fundraiser out there. But there's Snap Store, Snap Connect, Snap Manage. You can find out about the entire suite by going to snapraise.com. And we want to say thanks to Athletic Surveys by Lifetrack. Athletic Surveys are a quick, easy, and an affordable way for you to collect comprehensive data that allows you to evaluate and improve your entire program. Go to athleticsurveys.com. They're going to create a custom survey that lets you take the pulse of your parents and your student-athletes. Athletic directors already hear back from the complainers, the 2% that want to gripe. Athletic surveys will connect you with the 2%, but they'll also connect you with the 98% that love and support your program. Go to athleticsurveys.com. Let them help you take your athletic program from good to great. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Educational AD Podcast. We really do have a very special guest today. Uh, those of you that uh, read my first book, The Athletic Director's Toolbox, uh, may recall I listed uh, you know, my top 10 uh, coaches that I've had a chance to either play for or work with. And our guest today is on that list, probably right there at the top. Uh, our guest is Hugh Wyatt. He was a longtime high school uh, football coach and teacher uh, in the state of Washington. Um, also a very successful, you know, blogger, uh, you know, speaker. Uh, we're going to get into some of the things that he's really famous for, but uh, he's also uh, was one of my coaches. Um, we only had a sh short time together, but is very impactful, at least for me. Um, and we'll talk about that later, but Hugh Wyatt, welcome to the Educational AD Podcast. Jake, it's great to be with you. Okay. Well, we had an opportunity to reconnect uh, a few weeks ago when uh, Jan and I made it out to the Northwest for kind of our annual uh, summer reunion, got to spend some time with you and uh, your lovely wife, Connie. But um, we always like to let our listeners have a chance to get to know our guests. So, you know, your story, you know, deserves more time than we can devote, but give us that quick bio, maybe take us up uh, through your own college years, and then we're going to take a break and we'll hear more about your early coaching uh, and promotional career. Uh, but what's the Hugh Wyatt origin story? <laughs> well, I, I grew up in Philadelphia in a section called Germantown, went to, uh, went to Germantown Academy there. And, uh, and after that, uh, let's just say I was strongly encouraged by some members of the faculty to, to go to Yale, and I did. I had a choice of some other schools, but I remember talking to one old fellow, and I, he said, where are you thinking about going to school, Wyatt? And I said, well, I'm thinking about Yale and some other place and some other places. What's your problem? And so I felt like I had no choice, and I went to Yale. And it was a good, it was a good call, but uh, uh, football didn't turn out to be as good as it did as, uh, as as I thought it might have uh, simply because I maybe didn't take it as seriously as I should have. I didn't take my academics as seriously as I should have. But one great thing happened to me, and that was I was injured my senior year. And that's not a great thing uh, unless you realize that sometimes adversity can lead to something better. And as a result of because I was unable to play, I was prevailed upon to 
coached the intramural football team at our house. Uh, Yale at that time was divided into uh, several houses, uh, each sort of self-contained colleges within a college. And each one of those colleges had its uh, intramural teams. And at that time, intramural tackle football was a big sport there. And, and every year, the, the champion of the Yale League would play the champion of the Harvard League, and the second-place team would play the second-place team. It was a very big deal. And uh, I had a chance to coach these guys, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know. I didn't know enough of our own offense <laughs> that we were running to be able to teach these guys. But I went to the library, and I found a book by Hampton Poole, who at that time was the coach of the Rams. They were killing people offensively, the, the Los Angeles Rams, with Bob Waterfield, Norm Van Brocklin, Dan Tower, you know, terrific uh, uh, Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch and Tom Fierce. And so I got this book and I opened it up and said, wow, this is this is good looking stuff. I've got to try this. And knowing nothing more than what I read in the book, I went out to their practice and I said, hey, this is what we're going to do. And I looked at it. Yeah, OK, there we go. And, and it worked. It worked. And I said, whoa, this is so cool. I, you know, it was like a band director must feel when he takes a bunch of musicians and slams them together and suddenly they're making music. And Unfortunately, that was it for me because I, I turned down a chance to teach and coach high school in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I think I was offered $2,500 a year, something like that. And instead, I went for the big bucks. I went for $100 a week uh, in a management training program, and that got me into business. And I spent 10 years in the world of business, the best couple of which were working for a brewery in Baltimore, which was a very good job. But at the same time, I got going uh, playing for a semi-pro team in Western Maryland, where we lived at the time. And that led me after a couple of years of playing there to meet the owner of a team in another city who said, I'm looking for a general manager. And I said, Hey, I'll do your, I'll be a general manager not knowing what it paid, which was nothing. And then when our coach quit on us and we had no money to hire a coach, I became the coach. And you talk about learning on the fly. I was changing the tire at 70 miles an hour, you might say. And, uh, what saved me, I found, was uh, I, I found some pretty good football players, and they made a good coach out of me. And the experience I had there getting to no pro teams, because we were located in a place where we were about three hours from Pittsburgh, about two hours from Baltimore and Washington, D.C., three hours from Philadelphia. I was able to pick the cuts from those various teams, and we wound up with some pretty good football players on those teams. And as a result, I got to know where players were. And so when I heard that the World Football League was forming, I got in touch with the guy who was starting it, Gary Davidson. And I said, you know, I know where a lot of players are. I can't get you the stars, but you're going to need bodies and I can find them for you and I can sign them up. Did you want to did you want to say something, Jake? Well, um, I definitely want to have you share your uh, World Football League experience. But uh, going back to you know the the minor league teams, you know you mentioned uh, when you were at Yale, you know the intramural tackle football. I mean, we just don't see that anymore. But back then it was huge, and the minor league football at that period of time, you know, up and down the East Coast and different pockets of the country, you know, it, it was very, very um, you know popular. Um, take us through a, a story or two about those minor league days before we jump into the world football league. 
Well, we had some, uh, we played in some unusual places. Um, we played one time on Long Island. We were supposed to play at Hofstra University, and that got all our guys excited because Hofstra at that time had one of the first AstroTurf fields in the United States, and our guys were really pumped about that. But for some reason, we got there. We couldn't play there, but instead we were told we were going to play in Freeport. I don't know anything about Long Island then, and I didn't know anything now, but Freeport, I found the only place there was not a stadium. It was an automobile racetrack, and we wound up playing on the infield of the automobile racetrack. wasn't very well lighted because the lights are down on the track itself and not on the infield, and the corners of the end zones went up onto the bank tracks at each corner, and before the game, we're out on the field, and we're picking up gears and springs and all kinds of lug nuts and parts like that, and it was just a, a horrible experience, but we play in places like that, and then our home field, we put on a really good show in Hagerstown, Maryland. We had a, a general manager who really got excited about putting on a show, and one time the week before a game, I was sitting, having a beer after practice, and I was sitting next to a guy who happened to say that he was a skydiver. And, and I said, a skydiver? He says, how, how precise are you guys? He said, listen, look at this. And he pulled out a napkin and he put it down on the counter. And he said, if I could cut a hole in that ceiling, I could dive through there and I could land on that napkin. I said, could you land in the middle of a football field? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. No kidding. So, you know, we we promoted the fact that we we're going to have skydivers delivering the game ball and all that. And one of them was a woman who was dressed in a Budweiser bikini. She took her jumpsuit off and in the bikini, it was a great deal. And we got a good crowd. We promoted it the next time, uh, two weeks later and had a huge crowd there, which for us was about six, 7,000, pretty good. Uh, all paid too. And uh, these guys came in, but one of them missed and he hit the power lines over the South end shopping center and blew out all the lights in the South end of Hagerstown. And that was the end of the uh, the skydiving. So, you know, just some of the crazy stuff. But one of the best stories, I was just telling this last week because it was appropriate at the time. We were playing a school in suburban Philadelphia, uh, Delaware County. And this was a pretty good football team in the suburbs of Chester, Pennsylvania. Chester's a very tough town. And my my offensive line coach, he was a player coach, right guard. And in those days, if you're a guard, everybody played the pro defense, pro 4-3 defense. So you had a man opposite you. And he was having a terrible time. He was getting his butt beat. And after the game, somebody said, hey, you realize that was a high school kid beating you. Dickie says, you got to be kidding me, high school kid. Yeah, look in the program, says Jimmy Jones. And they said, he's a high school kid. Well, it turned out he was a high school kid. He played for St. James High School in Chester, but evidently he'd been thrown off the team. And so he was playing football here. And he he was so good. He wasn't just beating up Dickie Keats. He beat up everybody. He was so good. Somebody called Wayne Harden, who at that time was the coach at Temple. He had been the coach at Navy and had coached Joe Bellino and Roger Staubach. But he was coaching at Temple. He came out to see one of these games because they had no film. And he was so impressed that he signed the kid. The kid had a great career at Temple. He wound up being drafted by the Jets, had a great career with the Jets, and Jimmy Jones went into the Hall of Fame a couple of weeks ago as Joe Klecko. So if 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 I hope Dickie Keats, I, I hope he's still alive. Uh, he'd probably be 80 years old by now, but uh, I hope he did find out at some time in his life that that wasn't just a high school kid named Jimmy Jones who was beating him up. <laughs> Lined up against the Hall of Famer. I love against it. The Hall of Famer. <laughs> Hey, for our listeners, uh, our guest today, uh, a dear friend and my former coach, Hugh Wyatt, um, 
longtime high school coach, uh, international coach uh, in the state of Washington. We're going to take our first break, but we're going to come back with some more. Please stay with us. This is the Educational AD Podcast. We want to say thanks to Gipper for their support of the podcast. Go to Gipper.com. Their pros are going to help create world-class content for your school social media channel. Your kids are on social media today, and if you're not promoting your athletes and celebrating their accomplishments, you're really missing out. Go to Gipper.com. It's trusted by over 3,000 high school and college athletic programs across the country. And again, they're going to help you create world-class marketing content for your social media channel. It's so easy, even I can do it. Go to Gipper.com to get started. That's Gipper.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Educational AD Podcast. We're talking to longtime football coach Hugh Wyatt. Hugh, you kind of took us up through those minor league uh, football days, but then you uh, you also mentioned that you'd been in touch with the World Football League. Uh, tell us how that all played out. Well, I, I said that I got in touch with Gary Davidson, who had founded this league, and uh, that, that took some doing, but... He, I told him that I could find some players and they were going to need players in bulk. And, and uh, he said, I'm going to be in New York and come meet me there and so forth, the Essex house and so forth. And, you know, this is a, the gas, there was a gas shortage at that time. A lot of people don't realize this. Uh, you couldn't be sure you could get gas. You couldn't be sure stations were open, but somehow or other, I managed to get to New York. I met with him for about maybe three minutes. And he said, uh, go out there and start signing these players. Uh, I'm going to put you in charge of the Philadelphia team and uh, stay in touch. Boom. So, okay, great. I drove back to Hagerstown and I started getting in touch with players and the phone bill starts mounting and mounting and mounting. And I start getting calls from the phone company. Are you going to be able to handle this and what's going on here? And uh, I got in touch with them out there in the, the league and they said, Hey, just keep calling these guys. We'll send you some contracts that you can mail out to them. And I'm just calling guys. Like, yeah, this is, you white with the world football league and blah, blah, blah. You interested in playing? We'll offer you $17,000, blah, 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 blah. Great. Send you a contract. And I sent them contracts. And they sent them back to me and I forwarded them to the league. And so here I am representing the Philadelphia franchise. They have no owner yet. Apparently the, 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 the deal was that Gary Davidson would set up this league and he'd sell all these franchises, but he'd keep one for himself. And that was the one that he would sell and make his money. And so I'm working for a team with no owner, no name, no nothing. They talked about, and we'll, might call it the Philadelphia Express, the Philadelphia this, the Philadelphia that. Called me one day, said, I've, I've hired a head coach. His name's Ron Waller. He had been the interim head coach of the San Diego Chargers the year before. So now it's Waller and me working the Philadelphia franchise. And as, as one thing led to another, uh, I, I held a draft in uh, New York. Boy, I, I really, I picked some good ones. Let me tell you, I drafted Jack Lambert. You know, what are the chances that we were going to sign Jack Lambert? I mean, I, I drafted some John Capaletti, the Heisman Trophy winner. Hey, he's a Philadelphia kid, but we're not going to get Capaletti. But we drafted these guys for the effect. And anyhow, Waller got started hiring a few coaches. And then we started going out on the road and holding free agent trial camps and, and so forth and signing guys. And all we were really doing was signing them to come to camp. And we're going to bring 150 guys to camp and cut them fast. But one of the guys I did sign, and I'm pretty proud of this one, was a guy that I had seen when I was coaching in Hagerstown. Pretty good football player. I couldn't pronounce his name. It was an Italian name. Everybody thought it was Papel or something like that. But I made sure to get in touch with him and said, hey, we're, we're going to have a tryout camp here. We want to get you in here. And he came to this tryout camp. Uh, it was in Cherry Hills, New Jersey. And 
he was good. I mean, he, he runs a four or five and they, they looked at the thing as they get him to run it again. You know, white guys don't run that fast. And he ran another four or five and he was catching everything thrown to him, running great routes. Waller is saying, this is better than anybody I had in San Diego. So they wind up signing this guy and he had a pretty good career there. Two years he played with the Philadelphia Bell. And uh, and then after the, the league folded, as it did for the second time, he wound up convincing the Philadelphia Eagles to take a look at him. They gave him a private tryout, signed him. He wound up playing five or six years in the NFL with the Eagles. And they made an, they, Disney or somebody made a story about his life, Invincible Vince Papali. But of course, they left out the fact that he had played semi-pro minor league ball that he had played two years in the world football league they made it sound as if this was a guy that was playing touch on sundays before going to the eagles games right. tended bar nothing else but he was a spectacular athlete he had been a decathlete at saint joseph's university he had played high school ball he was he was a really good football player the real thing so it, it wasn't a I, I, I think they have to apologize to all these kids out in America that think that you don't ever have to play football, but if you can just persuade an NFL team to give you a shot, you're going to make it because that was not Vince Papali. He, he was the real deal. So anyhow, uh, the Philadelphia thing was a, it was a wild experience. We had, uh, I said, we had 150 guys in training camp, but in reality we had about 300 because it was some coming, some going, some staying here at the time they, they were in and out. And uh, it, it was up to me and a lot of times to uh, deliver the bad news to some of the guys. Uh, I didn't like doing that. Of course, Waller hated doing it. And I saw him at one time, hold a kind of a firing squad. He cut 12 guys at once, you know, wasn't, wasn't Jake, Jake, we really appreciate everything you do. We know you can make it somewhere. It's just a numbers game here. None of that stuff. He just got him in this. You're not going to make it here. And boom, out they go. <laughs> it, was, it was brutal. <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything more about Ron Waller. because he, He's dead. Nothing, nothing but good about the dead. But our, it was really exciting. Our first game, our first game, we played Portland and it was incredible. We had 65,000 people in old municipal JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, and we were excited. And of course, so was the league. We're headlines all over the United States. Opening game draws 65,000 people. Um, obviously, what was going on was on the strength of that great opening showing. There were people selling franchises, uh, selling pieces of franchises in the World Football League around the country. And then somebody did some digging. Somebody with the Philadelphia Inquirer did some digging, went down and found out what was actually paid in terms of uh, of admissions taxes and found out the the paid attendance was maybe 10, 12,000. The house had been papered. And so this was a huge thing because our management had repeatedly denied that it was the house was papered. Oh, that was that was paid. Everybody was there. And so we were considered frauds. The league was fraud. The league, league kind of went downhill from there. The thing that was overlooked as far as I was concerned was we got 65,000 people there to watch a team that nobody knew anything about. You couldn't do that anyplace else in the country, but Philadelphia, Philadelphia, if you turned on the lights in a stadium, people would show up thinking maybe there'd be a football game. And, and at the same time that was going on, the Phillies were playing the Dodgers over, uh, over at the vet. And there was some kind of concert going on at the spectrum nearby in the sports complex. And we still had 65,000 people there. So, you know, it, it it told me Philadelphia is a great sports town, no matter what. You look now at the XFL and the USFL, they're putting a decent product on the field, but there's nobody in the stands and they could let them in free, but they still wouldn't come. But in Philadelphia, <laughs> they'll show up. 
So anyhow, from there, that that one under, it was it was sad. It was right around Christmas time that we got the news that the league was going under. Boom, I'm out of it. And then I heard it was getting started again. And I got in touch with a guy who I heard was uh, had an opportunity to be a general manager. He had been briefly the general manager of the Houston Oilers. He had been uh, Art Modell's right-hand man with the Browns. And so he was in demand. His name was Bob Broadhead, heck of a guy, and uh, a Duke, Duke, former Duke football player, really, really good man. Uh, he told me that he had an opportunity to be general manager at uh, Jacksonville or San Antonio or Portland. And I said, well, you know, uh, you don't know much about the World Football League, and I don't. And uh, no matter what they're telling you, it's liable to be unstable again. And if we're going to be out of work, one of those three places, I'd rather it be Portland, Oregon, if you don't mind. <laughs> Anyhow, I don't know if it was on the strength of my recommendation, but he chose Portland. I came out there and joined him. Um, Connie and and our four kids drove across the country to, to meet us there. Fantastic experience. We were off to a really good start in Portland. Um, had some great people there. I can't say enough good things about the good guys that played in the World Football League. Some of them were never going to make it in the NFL. Some of them had played in the NFL and were at the end of their careers. Some of them, the, the three guys from the Dolphins, Zonka, Kick, and Warfield, uh, actually still had some gas left in the tank, and they wound up playing for the Memphis team. But they were good guys, and, and uh, just like the guys I knew in the minor leagues and all that, I really, really, really wanted so desperately for them to be successful, but it just didn't work. And uh, we we got the bad news that we were going out of business and it, it was a sad thing, but just about the same time that it happened in Portland and, uh, you know, maybe 50 of us were out of work, they shut down a lumber mill down on the coast and put 400 people out of work. So, you know, which is the greater tragedy? You know, so anyhow, that was it. And uh, I got to get a job at this point. And although I had graduated from an Ivy League school, I was unemployable at any public high school in the United States because I didn't have those education credits. So I had to go back and get the education credits. I got them and uh, got a job at a small school in uh, the foothills of the, the, uh, the, the coast range called Gaston, Oregon. Let's go and take a uh, a quick break. Uh, I, again, you know I've had a chance to visit before. Just got a ton of stories about the World Football League. I love it. Uh, and I think I shared with you uh, later on that season, um, you know, when Philadelphia came to Portland, my dad took me to that game in the old Civic Stadium. Uh, I think I think there was probably about 22,000, 23,000 people there. I don't know how many paid. We did. Uh, I still have the ticket stubs, but uh, let's go and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that next chapter of your career uh, working with high school. So our guest today is Hugh Wyatt. Uh, let's take that break, but we'll be back with some more. This is the Educational AD Podcast. We want to thank the good people at Huddle for their support of the podcast. Go to huddle.com and change the way you see the game. As a football coach, I used Huddle for years and it was just great. But when I became an athletic director, I made sure that our school was a huddle school. And our coaches just loved the tools that huddle provided that let them coach our kids at their highest level. Go to huddle.com, see why we believe in sports and teams believe in huddle. Join the 8 million users. Find out how to turn your school into a huddle school. We want to thank Vital Signs Wall of Fame for their support. Go to their website and check out their interactive 
touchscreen video consoles. It's a great way to showcase your school record boards for all the teams, for all the sports, or your school's Hall of Fame. That's vitalsignswalloffame.com. Let them help you bring your school's legacy to life. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Educational AD Podcast. We're visiting today with Hugh Wyatt, a longtime football coach you know, at the pro level. And now he's going to talk about uh, getting into high school coaching. So, Hugh, the, the World Football League had folded. Uh, you know, you're looking for your next position. Uh, where did your journey take you? Uh, well, the next thing was uh, it was the summer of 76. I had got my teaching credentials and I'm ready to go now, but there aren't any jobs. And then I happened to notice in the Portland paper that a guest in a class, class A school was looking for a coach. Now I'd come from Pennsylvania where class A was the largest classification. So, okay, let's take a look. And I got in touch with him and said, come on in for an interview. Apparently the superintendent and the principal were on their way out on summer vacation because they had all three of us in for an interview at the same time so they could get over with quickly. And uh, I guess I wound up wowing them with my professional credentials, having been the assistant general manager of the now defunct Portland Thunder. So they hired me and uh, I found out class A was the smallest classification in Oregon. Uh, they didn't have lights. They didn't have grandstands. They didn't have anything, but they had a nice group of kids. And I met with the kids. And I remember one of these kids said, you know, after I explained uh, what I was all about and what we were going to do and something like that, he said, why would a guy come from a pro team and coach at a class A school here? And I said, guys, I needed a job. You know, I got four kids and I need a job. And it was a it was a pretty interesting thing. Uh, just before our first game, one of the kids said he was going to have a birthday and he's asked, uh, you know, can I get together with a whole bunch of the kids? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. And he explained the details of the party. I said, hey, no big deal. Well, remember now, I had been in professional football now and one of my duties had been to make sure that on that airplane on that chartered plane on the way back there were two cold cans of coors in the seat pocket of every one of those seats and so forth. okay i took care of that stuff so the athletic director came to me we're back at banks now the athletic director came to me and said did you tell those kids that they could drink beer at tim's party i said well yeah Sure. They were, they're all going to stay in there and, you know, they're not going to drive or anything like that. He said, you stupid. Well, this was my introduction to high school sports. I was so naive about high school sports. I figured, hey, they're grown ups, treat them like grown ups. And so that was it. But we wound up having a, a really good year there. They hadn't won in Lord knows how many years. And we wound, I think we were six and three or something like that. And um, they actually they actually brought in grandstands for our last game there. And so it, it was a big deal. And then I learned that the town nearby banks, Oregon had an opening and banks actually had a stadium and they had lights and it was a little bigger school. And I thought this was, I fell for the glitz, you might say. And I left banks and I, or I left gas and I went to banks. I had two years there. They weren't fun. It wasn't, you know, the, the, Booster Club was very intrusive, and it just wasn't a pleasant experience. And in the meantime, I realized that if I had stayed at Gaston, we could have won a championship with those kids. It made me start realizing, you know, the people are a lot more important than 
the facilities and all that sort of stuff. But it takes you a while to learn this stuff. From, from there, I wound up going to Central Catholic High School in Portland, spent a year there as an assistant. It was one of the best years that I've ever spent. I've never been around such, such dedicated people, such people who really cared about their mission. It was just a, a, a wonderful experience with the, the football staff, the, 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 the teachers, the priests that were there, the uh, Father Dernbach, who was the, uh, the principal of the school. It was just a wonderful experience. And it, it set me up for uh, for going across the river back to Washington, where we lived in Vancouver and coaching at Hudson's Bay High School. The Hudson's Bay job came open. Uh, I applied for it. Turned out I wasn't the first choice, but that's okay. As Lou Holtz once said, I wasn't my wife's first choice either. Uh, so they, uh, I guess the guy that who was set up, wired for the job, got tired of waiting around for them to make their decision in Vancouver. And he took a job at another high school in the Portland area, which left them needing a head coach. And they contacted me and asked if I was still interested. And I said, yep, absolutely. Sure. am," And so forth there, I learned something. And that was that you, you better take good care of the seniors coming in. They had a good senior class and uh, I probably didn't treat them as well as I should have. And as a result, we didn't achieve as well as we should have. And we didn't have a really good first year and we didn't have a really good second year, but our third year, we really hit the jackpot. The guys who had come in then as our sophomores, whom we had brought up into the system uh, were really good. One of the things that helped us was that uh, we were running the run and shoot offense of Mouse Davis the great Portland state coach. And uh, uh, we were having more success running than shooting. And that was because of the misdirection aspects of it. We'd fake the fullback one way, run the other way that I decided, let's get into this thing full blast. And let's, let's go to the people that really know the misdirection offense, the best, the people with Delaware. And for I still have the, I still have the receipt. I think it cost 150 bucks to get a playbook and two reels of 16 millimeter film showing the Delaware wing tee. And I looked at that sucker and I said, man, I can't teach this to kids using the Delaware terminology because I can't understand the Delaware terminology, but I can teach it to them using our terminology, which we'd used with the run and shoot. And we put that thing in and we really overachieved. And, and I think the, the main reason why we overachieved, we never had big kids at bay. We never had a 200 pound lineman. I checked that we did have one. Uh, we never sent a kid off to a, to a college to play ball, but we had some tough kids, kids who could just, they bought into that system and it was perfect for them. The small alignment we had who were tough kids who were intelligent and, and we had real success there. And one of the things that fed the success was a few other schools around the Portland area were also adopting the, the wing tee. And every summer, rather than have a, uh, rather than go to clinics, we would bring a clinician in uh, from Delaware, from Princeton. We brought Bob Reed in from uh, Augustana College in, in Illinois. And these guys would talk to us about the various stuff they did. So by the time, uh, by the time I had got seven, eight years in at Hudson's Bay, I was a confirmed wing T guy. And then I came, I got the opportunity to go overseas and coach in Finland. This came about. You want to you want to take a break now? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we're going to take a break. But uh, for our listeners, uh, Hudson Bay High Schools in Vancouver, Washington, uh, that's where uh, the area that I grew up and went to high school. That was a pretty tough league. It's changed a lot now 
in the many years since, but, uh, you know, Battleground High School, Kelso High School up in Longview, uh, the three Vancouver high schools, that was a tough league. And to have success, that uh, that had to be pretty gratifying. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it, it, it took a lot of work, but I think we, we had a unique approach, and, and, uh, and that was that it was a team-first approach. We never had any All-Stars. The kids understood that. They, uh, they shared the, the credit. Uh, it, was, it was just a nice – I say it was like coaching at Mayberry High School at the time. It was a nice group of kids. Um, the parents were not overbearing. Uh, we did have supportive parents. I think the the interesting thing is you mentioned that it's not the same. The demographics have changed considerably. And uh, unfortunately, Hudson's Bay hasn't really had a, a good season in years, nor has its arch rival, Fort Vancouver High School, which at the time was, man, that was our nemesis. You know, the that, that was a huge game when Fort Vancouver played Hudson's Bay every year. It was an ironic thing for me because our four kids all went to Fort Vancouver and I coached at Hudson's Bay, but somehow or other we managed it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, again, you're absolutely right. It's changed. But I remember those days, uh, again, having gone to high school in that area, you know, with, with great fondness. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take that break. But when we come back, we're going to go into the next chapter of uh, our guest's uh, journey, Coach Hugh Wyatt, as he uh, literally leaves the country uh to coach football so let's go and take that break but we'll be back this is the educational ad podcast we want to thank home campus for their support of the podcast home campus is the exclusive high school and state association platform for us it's also your one stop for things like scheduling uh, student athlete eligibility and clearance uh, coach communication and, and a whole lot more as an athletic director I used home campus every single day, and it was just great. To find out more about what home campus can do for you and your program, all you need to do is go to homecampus.com. That's homecampus.com. Make sure you check them out today. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Hugh, you'd you know, uh, kind of taken us through those years at Hudson's Bay, you know, building that program up, but then you had an opportunity to uh, – coach in a very uh, unique situation can you tell our listeners about that yeah um, when I was playing semi-pro ball minor league ball back in Maryland one of my teammates was a guy named Clarence Thomas Clarence Thomas had gone to Morgan State he uh, he was roommates with the great Willie Lanier at Morgan State and uh, you know Clarence and his wife and Connie and I got to be very close friends and we stayed in touch over the years and Clarence wound up being the head coach at Morgan State, and then uh, he was coaching at Williams College uh, in Massachusetts, an elite school there, and he gave me a call and said, uh, I've got a, I got a chance to go out west. What do you think? Do you think that would be a really good job for me out there, Pomona College and so forth? And I said, well, it's, you know, I don't know. It all depends on what you want. And he said, well, I got a good deal here at Williams. I like a school that's somewhat like Williams. And I said, well, that's the one for you, I think, because Pomona is kind of like Williams on the West Coast. Coaches couldn't go and recruit or anything like that. But it just worked out beautifully for him. But in the meantime, he he got in with a bunch of other college coaches down there in that league in California where Division Three they couldn't go out and recruit. So they had their summers off. And as a result, 
a number of these guys started going over to Finland, coaching over there in the summertime, and then they'd come back in time to coach their colleges in uh, in California. And he got in on that thing and he gave me a call and he said, buddy, he says, I got a great deal for you. You got to get in touch with these guys over here. They need a coach and blah, 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 blah. And I got in touch with them. They needed a coach. And I wound up in a city whose name you can barely spell, much less pronounce, but it's actually Uvascula in the center of the, the country. And these guys were not really good, but some of them thought they were because their exposure to American football had been totally pro football. They had no concept of learning at SPWs. They had no concept of junior high or high school or college or anything like it was all they'd see a half an hour. They see the entire NFL league schedule that Sunday condensed into a half hour show and to see all these highlights and wow, I want to play this thing. So it, it was a lot of fun. We got to enjoy the thing quite a bit. And uh, I spent two years in this town of Uvascula. And the main thing I learned was that if I'm going to play against these guys from the big city, Helsinki, I got to get me a better team because we would go into Helsinki and we would play some teams there and we would just get crushed. And then we'd get back on the bus and back we'd go to Uvascula. Uh, the bus trip was something that uh, an, an American coach would find interesting because it must have been a union contract or something because every hour they had to stop for a coffee and cigarette break on every trip. Didn't matter how far you went. Every hour you stop, they get out, they drink. They're the, they're the coffee drinking country in the world. And of course they had to smoke and they had to smoke at halftime and they'd smoke before games. And that's it. You know, people who are very, very healthy, otherwise smoke like mad. And anyhow, while we were in, in, in Helsinki, one of the teams that absolutely crushed us was being coached by a Californian named Don Markham. Uh, they, they were running this condensed version of my wing T we would call it our tight formation, but they were really tight and they were running this doggone off tackle play that nobody could stop. Nobody could stop this thing. And, and, you know, even college coaches would come to me and say, how do you stop this? Thing? Well, how do I know? You know, you guys are the college coaches. I'm just a high school coach. Well, you know, but you no, know, nobody could stop it. So I said, you know, this stuff is good. We're going to adapt this thing. I'm going to take that off tackle play of his, and I'm going to adapt that to, to my offense. But it's going to mean that we're going to have to close down our splits just as he did. We're going to have to tighten everything up, which means that there will be some timing that we'll have to work out with our other plays. But we've got to have that off tackle play. And uh, that became our off tackle play. I called it superpower and uh, started experimenting with it in Finland and had a little bit of success with it. My third year there was a real breakthrough year for me, though, because two guys who had been real, they were really good junior college coaches in California at Saddleback College. Saddleback, you could check it out. They used to send any number of guys to uh, USC, UCLA, the big schools. But these guys had their summer, they had their summer gig going, but they couldn't coach there this one summer and asked me if I'd cover for them take their team and i said well yeah you know it's a chance to live in the city which is you know a nice town and uh decent accommodations and a really good team they had they had good talent they had the kind of talent that could have played a, a division three college in america they were good and we uh, we wound up winning the championship there uh the, that's that's another story because I had the best quarterback in the country, but his arm was hurt for that game. I had the best running back, but he couldn't play. And so as a result, we had to defend on a depend on our defense uh, and our special teams. And we blocked one of their punts with about four minutes to play down in their end of the field and then wound up 
we couldn't get a first down, but we kicked a field goal and we won the game three, nothing. And they, they thought it was horrible. It just, if it set finished football back 20 years, I said, hell yeah, we've only been playing 10 years, but you know, it just set it way back and it was horrible. And I thought, Hey, it's a thing of beauty, man. We won it three, nothing. I don't care. Absolutely. But as, as a result of that, I, I had a name, at least in Finnish football circles, and I was offered a chance to coach a to start a program in a little town about 40 minutes from the Russian border over in southeastern Finland called Hamina. And and that sounded really exciting. Nobody had played football before. I would have a chance to teach these kids from the ground floor up, just what every American coach would love to do in America. And, and I got to do it, and it was a fantastic experience. I coached there for four years, had the same guys, same core of guys the entire way, so I could see how they would just keep getting better and better and better. They they had no bad habits. They, they, they learned everything from me. They totally trusted me. And it was a great experience for Connie and me. We were the only the only Americans in the uh, in a town of maybe thirty five thousand people, and and we were sort of um, I don't know. You'd, you'd hear people. We'd be talking in a restaurant or a bar or something, and you'd hear people getting over close trying to listen to us because they wanted to hear how American is spoken. They 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 spoke English pretty well, most of them, but it was the Queen's English. They it's the Fast train and that sort of stuff. And, and so they they wanted to hear the jargon. I, I had to convince them that. Uh, not everybody here spoke like Eddie Murphy in the movies. Uh, the, the F word wasn't every fourth word that we used because in their English, it frequently was. But one of the greatest things about this was just last August at about this time right. that they had their 30th reunion sent me a, we actually had a zoom. I was there and I spoke to each one of these guys, many of them. It was the first time we'd seen each other in 30 years. I, I, I couldn't come right out and admit that I didn't recognize some of them because we we will change in 30 years. <laughs> but it, it was an amazing experience. I, I wish I could have continued it. Uh, they were not professionals. They were doing this for the sheer love of the sport. I had to I had to devise ways to get them to come to practice because they don't understand the American concept of practice being mandatory for them as you know I I come to play I I don't come to practice and uh, I I found two approaches worked one was we had a number of guys who were in the military there uh, there was a military base nearby and one of them was a a uh, warrant officer, Yuha, and I said, Yuha, what happens if uh, you go out on patrol and one of the guys doesn't know what he's doing? He said, well, we all get killed. And I said, well, that's what happens if somebody misses practice. Do you understand that? Oh, yeah, sure. And the other thing was one of the smartest things I ever did, and that was I scheduled a practice for two hours before kickoff of each one of our games. And that one was very well attended. Everyone came to that practice. And that's when we got all our special teams taken care of. So, but uh, you, you learn an awful lot about coaching people that don't grow up knowing the football jargon because you learn that you can't use things like, you know, hit them with the inside shoulder, hit them with a flipper, you know, this sort of stuff. You, you have to put things in terms that they understand. And once you realize that you need to do that for them. It's not a bad idea to bring that into your coaching package in the States and talk to these guys as if they don't understand the jargon that all us coaches understand. So it, it helped me tremendously that way uh, in my coaching over here. 
it, it was a lot of fun too. Uh, I, I, I wish I could have continued to do it. Uh, we had some, well, Connie's dad died one summer as we were on our way over to Finland and we were unable to go over there. We, we stayed with him and her mother and, and, uh, we just never got to go back. And, and I really regret that because it was a wonderful time in our lives. We spent seven summers over there. Yeah. And again, I had the opportunity to, uh, you know, see that photograph that you showed uh, of that reunion, uh, you know, for people that have coached, you know, for as long as you have, as long as I have, you know, those are those uh, just great little reminders of why we do what we do, the relationships, the wins are great, but it's those relationships that you're able to build with, uh, with folks. Um, we're going to go and take another break. And when we come back, uh, again, for our listeners, we're visiting today with Hugh Wyatt, longtime high school football coach and international football coach, former executive with the World Football League. Um, in this next segment coming up, uh, I, I'll let you prepare, Hugh. Uh, um, you had a number of other stops in your coaching career, head coaching stops, but one of them was at a school in uh, southwest Washington, La Center, home of the Wildcats. Uh, I want to talk about, I want to have you talk about that and then elaborate on the story of that term, the wildcat offense. Any football coach knows what we're talking about when we say wildcat, but I bet a lot of them don't know, let's go ahead and say it, the origin of that story. So uh, let's go and take that break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from our guest, Hugh Wyatt. We want to say thanks to our good friends at Sideline Interactive Indoor Score Tables and Video Boards. Go to sidelineinteractive.com and schedule a live web demo and see their score tables and their scoreboards in action. Probably one of the best purchases I ever made as an AD was our Sideline Interactive Indoor Score Table. We use it for home games, of course, but we also used it for pep rallies, for signing ceremonies. Their products are tremendously versatile, and their customer service is just outstanding. Go to sidelineinteractive.com, schedule that live web demo today, sidelineinteractive.com. We also want to thank our friends at Hometown Ticketing, the leading digital ticketing provider to schools and colleges. If you go to hometownticketing.com, their team is going to show you how to set up and sell tickets online not just for your athletic events, but for things like school plays, concerts, school dances, even graduation. And here's the best part. Every school gets assigned a dedicated client success manager that's going to provide you hands-on support every step of the way. Hometown Ticketing is digital ticketing that offers more, more support, more security, and more customization. Go to hometownticketing.com to get started. Hey, welcome back to the Educational AD Podcast. You, um, you know, you took us up through your international uh, coaching career, but then you know you came back to the states, and you um, developed uh, and, and nurtured a number of successful programs. But I, I'm wondering if you can share the story of La Center High School, very small school in Southwest Washington at the time, uh, and how you. Uh, built that program up and then the legend uh which is true uh of the wildcat offense uh jake uh i was coaching at a school called ridgefield washington uh 
north of north of Portland, north of Vancouver. A nice community. Uh, working with a a principal who had been the head coach. His name was Chris Thompson. I thought, boy, this would be cool to work for a principal who's been a head coach. The head coach there was a guy named Ozzy Osmondson. Great guy. I had six or seven great years working with those guys. And one summer, right in the middle of the summer, Chris Thompson, the principal called up and said, the center is looking for a football coach. They thought they, this was about the fourth one they'd had in four years. Their, they, their football coach they hired uh, turned out that something was wrong with his credentials. He can't, they can't hire him and so forth. Would you be interested? And I said, I'll talk to him. Sure. And I talked to him and uh, talked to the principal. And now at this time, you probably remember, but, just shortly before I took the job, the reporter in the uh, one of the, I guess it was the Oregonian, the Portland Daily, referred to La Center as the most forlorn football program in the state of Washington. La Center was really bad. There were there were three classes of kids who went all the way through there and never won a football game in their four years at La Center, and they just went went through coach after coach after coach. So I got there and you know I said, what the heck. Let's see. Let's see how things go. Uh, I met one of the guys there who was about six foot four. He was fast. He was a good basketball player. Their basketball team had won a couple of state championships. So there had to be athletes there. And this guy just he and I just hit it off right away. He was a good athlete. He was tough. He was demanding of his teammates. He wanted to win so bad. He just wouldn't settle for anything less than the best of ever from his teammates and so forth. So we didn't we didn't have a winning season that year, but we won three games, the last three games of the season. It was a big deal. And the second year now, we didn't have him anymore, but we still had some pretty doggone good kids. And we're, oh, we got about three, four wins or so forth. Now, this is a pretty big deal at a place that was used to going three and four years in a row without winning a game. And I, somehow or other, I, I talked to somebody who had talked to somebody who told me about a coach in Virginia who was running some kind of direct snap offense. Now, direct snap, to those people who aren't familiar with it, means that the ball is not handed directly up to the quarterback, but it's snapped back to a quarterback who's in the backfield or someone in the backfield. I had played that position in high school, single wing, it was called. And, you know, I had always wanted to try a little bit of single wing at the high school level. I had tried it earlier that year at my center and it was an utter failure because my center kept snapping the ball over the tailback's head. And, you know, that, that can cause 30, 40 yard losses. And we wound up losing the game all because of my stupid insistence on trying this thing. So when I heard that there was some guy who was running this and he was able to keep his center snaps under control, I had to find out more about it. It was a coach in Virginia. I don't remember his name. I wish I did. But he told me that his tailback or quarterback was close to the center. The center held the ball with two hands and just kind of flipped it sort of end over end, very soft. He had him practice by flipping it back against a, a beach chair with the web backing. And if it didn't knock the beach chair over, then it was just right. You had to have it soft and low and so forth. So we went out and we practiced it. It took us about 10 minutes of practice to make this thing work. And I said, okay, how about if we take the quarterback, we'll move him back into the backfield. We'll put our fullback, our V back right next to him. We'll snap the ball back. And then we'll just run everything as if the quarterback were under center, nothing radical about this really, but the kids say, Hey, this is really cool. What are we going to call this thing? And I said, I don't know. 
some kid says, well, how about if we call it the wildcat? We're the wildcats. I said, okay, what the hell? We'll call it the wildcat. And that's what we called the thing. And that weekend, you know, kids are, we going to every, every day it was, we're going to run the wildcat. Uh, we're going to run the wildcat. Uh, I don't know. Thursday night, we're going to run the wildcat. Aren't we coach? Okay. And for that Friday night, we're playing at Iwako, which Iwako is on the coast. It gets a lot of rain down there. Their field was about as muddy and soggy as I've ever seen it. And it was raining that night. And I think, good grief, we're going to snap this thing back, direct snap and rain like this. Uh, coach, we're going to run the Wildcat, aren't we? Uh, uh, coach, we're going to run the Wildcat. Okay, we're going to. We ran the Wildcat. And the upshot of it is we took him into overtime. We won the game. And we won the game running the dog on wildcat the whole time and we never had any bad snaps we never had any any uh, turnovers or anything like that it went beautifully and say this stuff's pretty good and that was the last game of the season but we were able at that time to schedule a kind of a bowl game with a local opponent who might want a game too and we managed to get a game with camas which was two levels above us camas was two levels higher than us they weren't good but neither were we. And we played Camus at their place and we killed them. We absolutely killed them running this thing. And I'm saying, there's something to this. It might have something to do with the fact that they have no idea who's got the ball back there. I don't know what it was, but I wrote an article for Scholastic Coach, whose editor I'd gotten to know over the years. And he published it about the Wildcat and so forth. And that was, I think, 1997. So I had the proof because some years later now, it's somewhere around 99 or 2000, somewhere around there, I think it was Arkansas started running this, and they claimed that they got the name, they originated the name, and somebody with the Dolphins claimed that he came up with the name, and somebody in Syracuse, New York said that he came up with the name, and I said, ah, but I got the proof. And so when Tim Layden wrote a book about football, I forget the name of it was, he was a great writer for Sports Illustrated, he spoke with me, and I told him about the article in Scholastic Coach that I had the proof that the name originated with me. I didn't design anything fantastic, it's just put a guy back there, direct snap it, and Wildcat nowadays is just snapping into anybody other than your real quarterback, snapping into somebody whose only ability is the ability to run with the thing. And I wasn't the first one to think about putting a guy back there to snap it because Bill Snyder was doing that at Kansas State with a guy named Michael Bishop. So, you know. All I did, all I did was come up with the name and I didn't even come up with the name. Some kid gave it to me, but anyhow, I'll take credit for being the guy that, that named the Wildcat. But the center was a really good experience. Uh, the, the, I wouldn't say the irony of the center is that when I left there, I told the principal that I thought that one of my young assistants who had played football for me at Hudson's Bay and had assisted me at my center was ready for the job, even though he was only three years out of college. His name was John Lambert. John is still there now. I think he's going into his 25th year as head coach at my center and my center is now one of the top class A programs in the state of Washington, thanks to the job that he did uh, from, from my center. I went to Washougal, Washington, uh, just spent one year there, but it was a great year because I had a great group of seniors. And I think of the center because I think of Eric Bernstein, who coached at your school, a battleground. Eric mm -hmm. Bernstein was a really good coach there. And 
Eric one time told me, he said, I never take a job without first telling the kids exactly what it is that I'm going to be asking of them, exactly what it is that they can expect from me. And after I've told them that, I say, now, I have one question for you. Do I have your permission to coach you? And I said, whoa, you do that, Eric? <laughs> Boy, that takes guts. <laughs> and, and well, well, why wouldn't you do that? If you can't convince a bunch of kids that you can coach them, it doesn't matter that you convince the school board and you convince the AD and you convince the principal, you got to sell the kids. So man, this is great. So I remember with those kids, uh, the seniors from Washugo, I, I had them over to my house and I said, now here's the way it's going to be guys. This is a I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and this. I'm going to ask you to do this and this and this and this and this. What do you think? Do I have a permission to coach as? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we went on, we had a great season. We, we went to the playoffs and, you know, we, we lost our first two games, but then we won seven in a row and, you know, they just boom, boom, boom. They, they were good. Uh, the interesting thing is just yesterday, I got a, I got a film clip from a coach in Winnipeg. Who, uh, whom I've been in touch with over the years. And uh, he, he does a lot of the stuff that I've, I've talked about. And he said, I want to just see this film clip. It's a film clip of him meeting with the parents and the kids at their preseason banquet. And he said, okay, now that I've explained this to you, do I have your permission to coach you? Yes, coach. <laughs> it was absolutely great. So uh, he said, thanks a lot for giving me that idea. And I said, no, that idea comes from Eric Bernstein, who being a true football coach probably got it from somebody else who probably got it from somebody else. But, you know, as, as the great Bill Vex said, never steal anything. You wouldn't be proud to own yourself. <laughs> so, Washugo was a good one. From there, um, I wound up working for uh, now I'm I'm almost done with coaching now. I'm I'm in my 60s. I thought I was almost done with coaching. And a, a coach in Portland, Oregon named Tracy Jackson, whom I've known for years, was coaching at Cleveland High School or uh, Madison High School, Madison. rather, and asked me if I'd be interested in being his offensive coordinator. I said, well, sure. And, you know, it took us two years. But second year, we were in the city championship game. Unfortunately, we lost to Grand High School. We just could not handle this one offensive lineman of theirs, Nagam Kong Su. We just could not handle that dude. <laughs> he's too much for us. But he went on that, to have a pretty good career. Yeah. Oh, he's a pretty good <laughs> football player. And then Tracy moved on to Hood River and uh, – I, I stuck around for one year with those Madison kids because they they needed somebody to coach them. It was a it was not a good season as far as the record was concerned, but they were absolutely great kids. They gave me everything they had. Uh, boy, you talk about kids who really, really, really pay the price to play football. Inner city kids, and it it was just a wonderful experience. And people said, "Geez, you ought to write a book about that one." I said, "No, because I, I might say something that would be." Uh, disrespectful of those kids. And I wouldn't ever want to say anything like that. They were just, they were great kids. And then, then I'm uh, by this point now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm selling materials. I'm putting on clinics, I'm doing camps and we're coming back from a camp in, Oh, I think it was 08 about July. My wife and I were driving back through, uh, through Washington and we saw a sign ocean shores this way. And well, we got a little time. It's a Sunday. And you want to take a ride over and see what it looks like? We've never been there before. And we drove over there and uh, happened to notice in the local paper, they were looking for a football coach. And 
<laughs> so what the heck? I'm going to find out what's going on here. Small school. I called the athletic director and I told him about my background and so forth. And he sounded mildly interested. And I said, oh, there's one thing that uh, maybe you ought to know. I don't need a teaching job. He said, oh, we need to talk. <laughs> that, that was the thing that put it over the top. And I wound up coaching there at a small school again. That I love coaching at small schools, by the way, if you hadn't noticed. Uh, there's something about it. Uh, I think you're, you're maybe the, the renown is smaller. Maybe the rewards are smaller. I don't know, but it's still football. It's still kids. There are, I, I think that there are more challenges there because you frequently have to innovate on the spot. If this kid was sick today or this kid got thrown out of school or this kid didn't do his homework and he has to stay late or blah, 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 whatever the reason I, I like it. There are fewer levels of, management of bureaucracy to have to deal with you can you go right to the ad you go right to the principal you can sometimes go to the school board at at my center one or at the ocean shores one time north beach high school uh, we had to we had to go in and get our first aid and unfortunately we had scheduled a practice for the exact same time as we had to go and take this thing so um our superintendents filled in. We had two superintendents. Both of them were former coaches. They were sharing the position because they were retired superintendents and they gladly took over the practice for us that day. Now that that's the kind of superintendents you want to work for. Uh, it was uh, just, just an interesting kind of situation there. Uh, we went seven and three that season and uh, they hadn't won seven games in the previous 10 years at, at Ocean Shores. And by this point, I know the formula now. And the formula is, of course, you want to have an offense that's simple enough that kids can understand, but effective enough to, to win for you. You have to do the same thing on defense. You can't make it so complicated that the kids can't play it. They have to understand it because if they, if they can't understand it, they can't be aggressive. And you have to make sure that you establish as soon as you possibly can a an infrastructure, a culture, as they call it nowadays. But you want to make sure that they know exactly where they stand, what's expected of you. You can't let kids come out on the field and try to guess what it is that's going to piss off the head coach. You've got to let them know exactly what it is so that then you can put all that discipline stuff aside. You don't have to worry about it now and then concentrate on the job at hand. You, you also have to make sure that kids understand that whatever it is that you say is your rule, you will enforce and you will enforce it no matter who it is. And I was blessed. My very first practice at North Beach the best player on the football team came walking in five minutes late. It was like, oh, Lord, thank you so much, because I lit his butt up big time. And you could almost hear the jaws dropping in the locker room. Nobody's ever spoken to Jamal like that before. Nobody's ever done that. What if he quits? He might quit. Well, you know, you, you got to be willing wherever you're coaching to deal with it if your best player quits just because he doesn't like your rules because whether he's there or not, they're going to be your rules. They're going to be the way you operate. So that was the biggest thing I thought that got us started. Another thing that was great there was I didn't have assistant coaches and there aren't too many assistant coaches in that area, but I did have a couple of retired coaches who were friends of mine, one from Idaho, a coach named Gary Garland, and another from Maine named Jack Turtelot. Jack was the principal and head coach at Booth Bay Harbor, Haba, Maine, 
and Jack Jack had just retired and he didn't want to be around the community uh, in a position to criticize, to second guess the new football coach and all that. So he wanted to get out of there and I said, Jack, come on out and coach with me for a season. It was just the most fantastic thing. Jack would say, hey, I need a tackle on a guard. And the kids would say, what? A God, a tackle on a God. What, what's Coach T talking about? You know, but it, it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, that was that was enough. I got out two years, and then a guy who had been uh, the coach of the middle school, I was there, Todd Bridge, a former, uh, former player at the University of Washington. He's a very, very knowledgeable coach, said, I'm, I'm thinking about taking the job at North Beach. Would you be interested in coming assisting me? And I said, well, let's talk it over and let's make sure that we're on the same wavelength as far as uh, our attitudes, our, our our work habits, our dealing with kids and so forth. You, you absolutely have to make sure that you can commit to someone with total loyalty if you're going to work for them. And uh, when we agreed that we could work together, that he would uh, he would listen to me. I said, whatever decisions you make, they're your decisions, but you got to listen to me first. He said, okay, that's fine. We worked together for seven years there and um, had some really good seasons. And then Todd moved on to Aberdeen, Washington. I, I, I went there with him as his offensive coordinator. We had a good season there at Aberdeen. Todd is now the coach at Aberdeen. I've stepped back from that. Uh, I've still got my Zooms and my blog and so forth that I keep up. And Todd and I, talk frequently about what's going on there but uh he he's he's launched i think and it's just uh it, it's been a good situation there and and i really i like that area as you can tell up around ocean shores and aberdeen it's a it's a different kind of part of the country it's not the washington that people think of when they think of seattle and tacoma and that sort of stuff it's it's rough and rugged country and and i like it yeah and i was fortunate enough to um come up and visit you and Connie in uh, ocean shores and got to meet Todd. Uh, he's actually going to be uh, on an upcoming uh, podcast interview. So appreciate that. Um, Hugh, we're going to take another break. And again, for our listeners, when we come back, I'm going to ask Hugh to share uh, the origin story uh, of a terrific program and how you as a coach or as an AD. And if you're an AD, I encourage you to get your football coach involved with this uh, in the program that Hugh's going to share. So stay with us. Uh, this is the Educational AD Podcast. We want to thank our friends at Snap Mobile for their support of the podcast. Go to snapraise.com. Snapraise.com is the website. And check out their entire suite of platforms designed to help you do your job better. If you're looking for a fundraising platform, stop right here. SnapRaise is hands down the best one. But there's so much more. You've got Snap Manage, Snap Store, Snap Connect, and a whole lot more. You can check them all out by going to snapraise.com. That's snapraise.com. Welcome back, everyone, to our visit with longtime football coach Hugh Wyatt. Um, obviously Hugh has had an incredible career, uh, you know, working with kids, working with coaches. Um, but I think one of his greatest contributions to our profession is discovering a story, doing some research, and then creating a program that is truly national and I dare say international in itself. 
It was also a way that he and I reconnected. Oh gosh, let's say about 22 years ago online uh, by accident. But for my final years as a football coach and as an athletic director working with my football coach, this program uh, was just tremendous. So uh, Hugh, you know what I'm talking about. Can you share with our listeners the story of the Black Lion program? Jake, it's a uh... It's, it's really become an important part of my life. Um, and it really started, uh, it started, oh, back in 1970, when I began coaching, uh, I'm looking around for guides, things that are going to help me in my coaching. And uh, one of the things I found was a book called You Have to Pay the Price. It was, it was written by, uh, by Earl Blake. Red Blake, the uh, the coach at West Point for a number of years, he coached a couple Heisman Trophy winners in Blanchard and Davis, won three or four national championships there. And it's the story of his career as a coach. And it really deals heavily with some of the problems that he had to run into as he was coaching there, because, you know, things things don't run smoothly for any coach anywhere. And I learned a lot of things here. But one of the things was uh, a story about a quarterback he had who wasn't really a quarterback at all. He started out as an end, uh, became an All-American end as a junior, and then as a as a senior, as an upcoming senior, was approached by Coach Blake, who said, I'm really not content with the kind of leadership we have at the quarterback position. At that time, at that time, the quarterback really was the field general. He really was the coach on the field because coaches could not send in plays then substitution was limited you couldn't send a man in with a play because if you sent that man in with play he was in for the rest of the quarter the guy he went in for is out for the rest of the quarter and as a result and you couldn't signal plays in there was such a thing as coaching from the sidelines so you had to train the quarterback to be able to run the game call the plays know what what's the best thing in this situation and this was a guy now his name was don hollander he had not played anywhere in the backfield before he'd been a great great highly recruited athlete at aquinas institute a catholic school in rochester new york he was all set to go to notre dame but his father wanted him to go to west point the u.s military academy and his dad died when he was i think a sophomore in high school so there's no question that he was going to go to the military academy anyhow i've got to jump ahead now because he did wind up playing quarterback at West Point and he had a pretty good season, but not the kind of season that West Point people expect, but there is one thing that will redeem any season at West Point, And that is a win over Navy. And that was the reason why coach Blake really wanted him to play quarterback. And in his final game against Navy didn't complete a single pass. He's a left-hander didn't throw particularly well either. He didn't complete a single pass, but they wound up beating Navy and he was on the cover of sports illustrated for this. It was a, a very big deal. Now, you know, I forgot about this story and just put it aside, but then I remember reading somewhere about the black lions being ambushed in the jungles of Vietnam and so forth. Now that was, that was many years later after his, Navy game. And I started reading and I was, wait a minute, that was Hollander was killed in that conflict, the battle of Ong Tan in Vietnam. So wait a minute. So now I'm going back here again. Now, wait a minute. Here's a guy who was killed going in 
put the helicopter down. He saw the battle going on. He saw guys coming out of the jungle. Put the chopper down. I'm going to go in there. There's wounded in there. Let's go. Let's go in and get the wounded. And as he was going in to get the wounded, he was killed by automatic weapons fire, cut down by a sniper. Now, there's a guy who not only in his college career at West Point gave up a chance to be a repeat All-American. And, you know, that was a big deal at that point. There wasn't so much Heisman Trophy stuff then. To be an All-American was to be the very best at your position. He was an All-American, and and yet he sacrificed that individual honor in order to become a quarterback, and he knew he could never be that good a quarterback, but he could be the leader that helped his team defeat Navy. So he's doing that for his team, and then here he's making the ultimate sacrifice for his team in Vietnam. I said, there's something there. And I, I wrote something about this. In the meantime, uh, this was the early days of the internet where it was a rare deal to have a, a website. I started hearing from guys who had actually served with Don Hollander. One guy, one was the general who, uh, who identified his body. The other was the medic in whose arms he died. He says, he still refers to me as sir. He said, sir, uh, I was the army medic. Major Hollander died in my in my arms and blah, blah, blah. I said, whoa. And I got talking to these guys and I realized, wait a minute, this is, this is a story that American high school kids need to know about. They need to know about a guy who, who made sacrifices twice in his life for the good of his fellow players, for the good of his fellow soldiers. And I said, and then I read more about this guy and the things that people said about him. You know, he was courageous, obviously. He was a fearless leader. He would just, let's go guys, follow me, here we go. Uh, he was uh, as, as unselfish as you could get. Uh, it was a team first guy. I said, this is the sort of stuff that football teams need. We don't need a star. You know, businesses don't need stars. They need those people who will do whatever it takes to make the organization successful, who will put their teammates first, who will be brave, who will be hardworking, who will be courageous, that sort of thing. And so uh, I decided, you know, to approach these guys that I knew from this, uh, the, the, the second, inv the uh, second of the 28th, the, uh, the Black Lions, as they were called, they they first got their nickname because they were the first Americans to go into battle in World War One uh, at the town of Cantigny, France, and they were nicknamed because of their bravery, the Black Lions of Cantigny. It goes all the way back to 1919, and uh, I got in touch with these guys and said, "What do you think?" Well, this general, General Jim Shelton who had played football at Delaware, as a matter of fact, said, let me run with it and see what happens. General Shelton now, and I know, Jake, that you've, you've met General Shelton. General Shelton, uh, you can't do something like this because the Army is terribly afraid that you're going to do something that's going to hurt their reputation or you're going to try to sell hamburgers. Uh, stop down to the Black Lion tonight and buy your hamburger or whatever. Uh, th this would not be used for any commercial purposes. It would not in any way denigrate the army or whatnot. Uh, I had guys checking up on me and, you know, what's who's this guy all about? Uh, anyhow, after uh, after a length of time, General Shelton said, looks like it's going to be approved by the Department of the Army and so forth. And you may give the Black Lion Award. And I, I of course, I was able to talk to uh, Major Hollander's widow who was left to raise four girls by herself, four little girls by herself, amazing story, and uh, got her blessing to go ahead with this sort of thing. And we said we, we would establish this as an award that would be given by high school or 
middle school, junior high, or youth coaches around the country to a player who the one player on their team, not several, who best exemplifies the character of Don Hollander. And we'd list the various things there. Didn't have, didn't say a thing about what he did out in the community. I don't care if he takes food to the homeless or anything like that. That's wonderful, but it doesn't have anything to do with this. I don't care if he's a great student. Doesn't matter to me. I don't care if he's a great football player. The important thing is, does he measure up to these qualities? And, and I think what makes this unique about uh, this award is that uh, you don't have to be the star of the team. You don't have to be the biggest, fastest guy in the team, but you got to be somebody who is an inspiration to your teammates through your unselfishness, your, your courageous, your courage. You know, maybe, maybe this is a kid who played the entire season hurt and everybody said, wow, you know, I really admire that. Who knows what it is, but it could go to a center. It could go to a guard. It could go to a tackle. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it, it's not like the Heisman trophy, which is going to go to a quarterback or a wide receiver or a running back that sort of thing so anyhow as a result of this uh eventually the military picked up on it and it was kind of interesting how this happened um bobby ross was the coach at west point at this time and uh he he said that uh you know this is this is great we're going to we're going to give the award to west point we're going to give the award to west point because the army football club the I'm an honorary member. I did not play football at Army. I wish I had been good enough, but I, I I wasn't and I didn't. But anyhow, the the Army Football Club, which is the organization of former football players there, decided that they would give this award to West Point uh, and they would give it to a player. Here's a picture of Trent Steelman, a quarterback in a Navy game, uh, wearing the wearing the black lion patch on his uh, on his shirt. Uh, and. Uh, as a result of this, uh, that there is now one college. For a brief time, Kansas State also gave the award uh, because Kansas State ran a program in conjunction with the Black Lions when they were uh, posted at Fort Riley, Kansas. But West Point is the one school that does, one college that does give this. Now, uh, in the summertime, as a, I, I, I take the letters of the various people have written recommending their uh, their players for the Black Lion Award. I bind them up and then send them out to the various people who who really take an interest in the award. People, the Black Lions themselves, people who have donated, people who uh, just West Point graduates who have shown an interest in it. But uh, it, it it took a big hit, I must say, during the pandemic, possibly because football, people lost interest in football. There was no football being played in a lot of cases. There is, I got to be frank, a very anti-military uh, strain running throughout our society right now where people are concerned about doing anything that makes it look as if they're supporting recruiting or the military. I have to point out that this has nothing to do whatsoever with uh, with recruiting or whatnot. It's not in any way connected with the Army. It happens to honor uh, a player who served in the U.S. Army and men who served and died with him that day, the Black Lions. Uh, but we're we're getting the thing going again. And uh, I'm I'm very proud to uh, to have been a been instrumental in the starting of the Black Lion Award. Yeah, um, I, again, great job sharing the story and the origin behind it. And that was one of the things that really appealed to me as a coach. Um, you know, my career's kind of been like yours, mostly at small schools, and so having kids play out of position or change positions, and um, 
you know, when I was at Coral Springs Christian for those eight years, every single year we had a kid that it was exactly that. We had to move them to a different position. And these were good kids um, just because of the makeup of the team. And to be able to come in and have an award like this uh, to recognize that type of, you know, no other word for it, sacrifice for the team was just tremendous. And I'll let you tell, uh, we also were very fortunate to have a real, a real black lion come and present our awards. <laughs> you sure were, Jake. Um, Steve Goodman, <laughs> known known as Goody by his fellow black lions, was, uh, I'm not sure that I'd call him a hero, but boy, he sure was held in high regard by the men who served with him. You know, one of the greatest things about the old time military was that they'd get guys from everywhere. They'd get the the country boy from Arkansas and they'd, they'd get the kid from the the, the, the forests of Washington and they'd get kid the street from the streets of New York or whatnot. Goody was a kid from the streets of New York. Goody was a big streetwise Jewish kid from Brooklyn. And these guys, they, his fellow soldiers, almost revered him for his ability to get things done, to make things happen, to never say no for an answer, that sort of thing. And some of the stories they tell about Goody are are unrepeatable here just because of he was so clever that he could get the best of almost anybody. And you were so fortunate at, at your Christian school in Florida to get the Jewish guy, Steve Goodman, to go there. And he really, really treasured the time that he spent with your kids there. Yeah. And, and again, it, he literally lived across the street from our school. Uh, he'd come over and watch practice. You know, we'd always practice would stop sometimes because the kids wanted to go over and, and hear a story or two. Our parents <laughs> uh, very much, you know, in awe and respect. It was certainly the highlight of our awards program. And you mentioned General Jim Shelton. You know, he came to our school a couple of times and then we'll stop talking about me here in a second. When I moved down to Miami uh, to become the athletic director at another school, we brought the award with us and both Steve and General Shelton came down two times uh, and they just, uh, they, they you could tell, they really loved being a part of it. And uh, I still get emails from kids that were our Black Lion winners. Uh, just, it was very meaningful for them. You know, uh, something that comes out of this too is, as, as you and I both know, you're not going to win every game. There's going to be. I had a season where we didn't win a game that that season at Madison. It it, it happens. The amazing thing about these guys is the the black lines that I've got to know. They're so incredibly tight, and their tightness was brought about by a defeat. They got their butts kicked. They were ambushed in the jungle by a vastly superior force of North Vietnamese regulars. They didn't have a chance and they got chopped to bits, but there's something about that defeat that made a tightness of these guys that you might not have found had they had they gone out and won. And and this same thing can happen. We 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 sometimes tend to revere our teams that went undefeated and we don't think about those other guys that maybe didn't win a game and they never got the real rewards of looking at each other in the locker room and going, yeah, we did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. But they still put everything they had on the line there for that football team. And they're deserving of the same respect. Yeah. And again, from a coaching perspective, it's the perfect award. It's the, kid that 
sacrifices and gives up for the sake of the team. Uh, those same attributes that, uh, you know, are honoring Don Hollander. Um, Hugh, we got one more segment coming up, but before we go, if one of our listeners wants to reach out and I guess twofold, pick your brain because listeners, you've got a, uh, a football encyclopedia as far as history and technique. Uh, you got a great clinician here. And also, and I strongly encourage you to do this. If you want to turn your school into a black lion school and present the award, how do they do that? How do they get in touch with you, Wyatt? Get in touch with me and let me know your intentions or whatever your request is. Coach Wyatt, all one word, Coach Wyatt at AOL.com. Simple as that. Okay. And uh, your website, we don't have time to go into it now, but Hugh, uh, in his words, and it's perfect words, uh, he's been doing a blog since before blog was a word. You know, he's got a website. It's football. It's history. It's education. It's some really, really great stuff. Uh, what's the website, you? www.coachwyatt.com. Okay, so easy to remember. Um, Coach, I wish we could go on uh, for another hour or so, but uh, we're going to take our final break. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to give you one more challenge. I'm going to task you to send out a brand new athletic director. You've worked for some athletic directors in your career, uh, but a brand new one on their very first job. But I'm only going to let you put three tools in that toolbox. So let's take that final break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what coach Hugh Wyatt is going to put into his new athletic director toolbox. We'll be right back. We want to thank athletic surveys for sponsoring the athletic director toolbox segment. Athletic surveys are a quick, easy, and an affordable way for you to collect comprehensive data that allows you to evaluate and improve your entire program. Go to athleticsurveys.com. They're going to create a custom survey for your program that'll let you take the pulse of your parents and your student athletes. Athletic directors already hear back from the complainers, the 2% that want to gripe about your program. Athletic surveys will connect you with the 2%, but they'll also connect you with the 98% that supports your program. And that's a tremendously valuable tool to have when you're talking to a frustrated parent or your principal or your school board. Go to athleticsurveys.com. Let them put together that survey for your program and help you take it from good to great. Well, it's that time of the podcast. We have been visiting with Hugh Wyatt, longtime football coach. He's an author. He produces videos. Um, but right now I'm going to challenge him to send out a brand new AD, a brand new leader on the very first job. But I'm only going to let him put three things in the toolbox. So, Hugh, what three items are going to go into your new athletic director toolbox? I think the first thing I'd say there would be meat. Uh, you you must meet with all your coaches, if possible, with all your assistants, and if possible, with all the teams each season, and let them know what your expectations are and where the coaches are concerned. Ask them what you can do to help them. So that would be the number one thing. Say so the number two thing is to observe. Get out of your office. Get out there on the practice field and see what's going on. Stand on the sidelines. See how the kids are doing. Don't ask them, do you like the coach or anything like that? 
you ought to be astute enough that you can observe. You can you can tell whether the morale is good. You can tell whether things are organized. You can tell whether practice is moving the way it should. You can listen for the language. I, 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 I'm sorry, but I hear a lot of cases where I hear that, you know, there's, I hear the F word being thrown around a lot. Wait a minute, wait a minute, not on a practice field. And if the athletic director is out there, that in itself might be enough to keep it from going on. So that'd be the second thing. The third thing, I guess you'd say, relieve would be something like that because every coach is under time constraints every coach has got a game coming up this wednesday this saturday whatever time is precious and the athletic director while he's got a lot he or she has got a lot of concerns doesn't have that deadline facing him and so when a parent needs to talk to the coach or something like that i think the athletic director has got to realize that the coach has already got his or her practice week planned out tightly it's going to be very hard to wedge a little time in there see what you can do to to help this thing out uh, to help this coach out take take something relieve the coach of that stress but that gets me into and and you can call this as you want the the chain of command thing make sure you establish a chain of command so that people know where to go if they do have a grievance if they if they don't first go to the school board they don't go first go to the principal they don't first go to the athletic director they first go to the coach and actually first it's the player going to the coach and if there's no satisfaction then it's going to be the player and the parent going to the coach and so forth so i guess probably i would say the chain of command would be even more important than relieving i would say meet observe chain of command well you probably saw me scribbling those down um having been a, a coach uh and an athletic director and sometimes at the same time uh, i i love every single one of them and the one you talked about of relieving that was something i tried to do as an ad is i wanted our coaches to do the fun part, you know, the coaching kids. And as much as I could take off of their plate, um, you know, the scheduling, the uh, publications, doing the game day programs, things like that. I mean, if they wanted to do it, I let them do it. But I always told them, hey, if, if you need me to take this off your plate, uh, I, I can do that. And you also talked about being that buffer uh, between the parents. Uh, I would tell the parents, if you got something good to say, tell our coach, stop in the parking lot and say, coach, you're doing a great job. You got a complaint, you come and see me as the AD. Uh, you know, that's my job to to handle that. Hugh, uh, again, I can't tell you uh, enough uh, the impact that you've had on my career as a coach, even though uh, it was only for a brief time, those few games with the Vanport Thunderbirds, you made a huge impact on me, how to work and deal, uh, how to work with kids, um, terminology, you know, stuff that you introduced in that camp. Uh, you know, I used uh, coaching collegiately in high school and then as obviously with the black lion, uh, just thank you for what you've done for me and my career and what you continue to do and for what you do for coaches and kids uh, all across the country. Well, thank you, Jake. Uh, you're doing a wonderful job here, and uh, I wish I could take credit. If I had spent more time with you, I probably would. But if uh, if I've had anything to do with it, uh, I'll gladly take that credit. Okay. Well, one more time uh, for your football blog. And again, uh, if you're listening, you need to check out, uh, I'll go and give it out, www.coachwyatt.com. You need to check out the website. Uh, there's also coaching resources there for football, for leadership. Uh, and if you just want to have a master coach, a master leader as uh, somebody on your network, what's the email address again? 
Coach Wyatt at AOL.com. Hey, well, Hugh, thanks again for being on. All the best uh, with the coming uh, season. For our listeners, we're actually recording this on August 23rd, so uh, you're going to be hearing it very timely. Uh, reach out to Hugh Y, become part of his network. And uh, Hugh, like I said, all the best for uh, the coming fall. Thanks, Jake. Great being with you today. For our listeners, uh, we do this just about every day, and we upload the Zoom videos to the Educational AD Podcast YouTube channel. Of course, we appreciate you listening. Come back next time for another great interview on the Educational AD Podcast.